Hello, everyone, and welcome to Co-Ops Connect. I'm your host, Abby Carreri, Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Connexon. Each episode, we bring you authentic, heartfelt stories from rural electric cooperatives deploying fiber broadband networks to serve their territories. We sit down with co-op leaders who are tackling head-on the rewards and challenges of bridging the digital divide in rural America, one mile of fiber at a time. Connexon is proud to be at the forefront of the electric cooperative fiber broadband movement, partnering with co-ops across the country to transform communities with world-class fiber internet. Our values align with the cooperative principles of sharing resources and working together to improve services and lives of the members served by our co-ops. So, no matter where you are in your broadband journey, whether you're contemplating getting started or already laying fiber cable on your network, tune in to Co-ops Connect to hear directly from the changemakers who are powering progress at the speed of light in their own rural communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Co-Ops Connect. We're joined today by Randy Carroll, the CEO of East Mississippi Electric Power Association and its fiber subsidiary, East Mississippi Connect. East Mississippi Electric is based in Meridian, Mississippi, and serves more than 37,000 member locations. Randy, thank you for joining us, and welcome. We're excited to have you today. Thank you. So I'd like to start by getting a little bit of basic information about your co-op territory and the members you serve. East Mississippi Electric Power Association serves the eastern side of Mississippi, primarily in four counties, Winston, Kemper, Lauderdale, and Clark, with the surrounding five additional counties, some of the pieces that go over into those counties that were easier for East Mississippi to serve. As you said, we have over 37,000 member locations that we serve. We're a unique co-op in that we are split half in two with multiple wholesale power providers. Our northern two counties are served with TVA power, and our southern two counties, we purchase power from Mississippi Power Company and deliver that power in those counties. That in itself creates some unique challenges. Uh, We have to keep separate books separate systems for those two delivery areas, but it gave us some practice to keep separate books and separate systems for creating a subsidiary called East Mississippi Connect. So while we may have had a little bit of a head start on some and keeping things separated and allocated properly, I think the others in the state are catching up now. So can you talk to us a little about your co-op's density and characteristics and the member makeups that you serve, residential versus business? We have over 5,700 miles of power line that breaks it down to about six and a half member locations per mile. They are primarily 86% residential delivery locations, uh, remainder being small commercials. We only have two that I would classify as being large enough to be industrial loads, one in our south system that's an oil pumping load, and then our biggest customer is NAS Meridian that trains pilots for jets. So that makes up our customer density and and base. And I know you all recently launched your fiber broadband subsidiary, East Mississippi Connect. Can you tell us how many broadband subscribers you all have on there today? And then based on where you've gone so far, what your take rates are looking like? It's been quite a challenge to take off out of the blocks, you might say, in a sprint 
on this marathon that we have to run, but that was sparked by CARES money that was provided by the state. In order to get that money, we had to commit to some pretty aggressive deadlines. By the end of the year, we had to meet certain goals. By the end of June, we have to meet the matching goals. CARES Act was a unique joint venture between co-ops and our state legislature. We were approached and asked to come up with a solution to put broadband into homes that didn't have it. Luckily, we were already looking at those options when they approached us, and the co-ops pitched the idea with the legislature of doing a 50-50 joint partnership arrangement. If they would provide 50% of the money, we would put up 50% of the money, and we would commit to those deadlines in order to get broadband out there. Some thought we were being a bit aggressive in that they didn't believe we could spend that kind of money in that length of time, but we have been able to. In this compressed timeline, you're looking to build over 464 miles of fiber and pass over 1,800 homes. Can you tell us a little bit about this extremely expedited process that you've gone through and then what you've learned from this fast pace and then how you've kind of put all the pieces together in order to be able to actually execute on this efficiently? I don't know if I'd say efficiently yet. It has been a challenge. I'm reminded of a story from a line foreman years ago who used to tell his crew, I'm about to make the line hot. Y'all better get started building it. That's kind of the way this project has felt. We needed to have set up some business processes, inventory management, how we'll purchase all this inventory, how we're going to build for these services, what software we're going to use to build for these services. All those things that have to happen on the front end, we didn't have time to do. We had to start getting it done and build the processes along the way. So we actually had customers connected off of a temporary internet service providing option, a pop, before we could even bill for them, before we had the permanent service to serve them. We went for almost two months serving customers off of a temporary connection. And so we didn't bill for that time period, which put us to January 1st before we could actually send the bill out. So the challenges have been, How do we mold back in and come up with the right business processes and flow? And then we have to go back and count the inventory and get all that correct in the process. Uh, It's been challenging. It's been challenging. And the construction process, that's another big piece of this pie, right? On getting and getting to the point where you're connecting members. So for those listeners, this type of process usually takes roughly nine months before you actually turn up your first subscriber. So could you give us a little, little detail on how quickly you turned up your first member and then how the construction process was in play for that and what aided in helping get that done quickly? July 1st was when we created the business. November 7th is when we connected the first customer. We put crews on the ground almost immediately. I would say by September 1st, we had crews here ready to build fiber. So by then, we had also purchased materials, had the materials here ready to go. The construction crews, if they don't have to deal with a lot of paperwork, can make a lot of ground fast, and they were able to do that. Now we've got to go back and clean up the paperwork process, but that's okay. We met the goals we set out for them. It was a little slow on the front end. We had challenges in that there was a railroad that went through the area where we needed to build. So those crossings took a while. So we could build up to the railroad and have to stop and get on the other side of the railroad and go again and wait till we put the piece in the middle. We had a lot of highway crossings that we had to do in those two areas that we chose as our CARES Act areas. That created challenges. But um, it's been amazing to watch the crews, the installers, our staff here. 
even the Connexon group that's been here managing the project for us have all worked as a team and everybody seems to know what position they play, put it all together to make it work for the members. Members have been very patient with us while they want it today. They also understand that they've been waiting for years to get it and someone is finally bringing them the service they want. So having this being a whole new entity getting into, can you tell us about some of the people that you leaned on along the way, especially working through this expedited process to get your members served to meet the CARES Act deadline? Can you talk about the different entities and people that you were working with along the way that really assisted in helping bring this all together? Well, Connexon was our lead partner in that they already knew the, the path that we need to travel. They sent us to additional people who have traveled that path and let us gain an understanding from how they have, while they have taken, as you said, the nine to 12 months to set the process up and get going, they allowed us to view that process quickly so that we could come back and implement it in the time frame we had to implement it in order to secure the funds. Then we have also used other vendors that we had relationships with, the material supplier that we already had a relationship with. They got on board, began finding materials for us to get it in here fast enough that we could build it in the time frame we had to. We relied on Connexon again to get us connected with Urban Construction, and they brought crews in and run at the pace that we've asked them to run at. We've used Highland Cabling that we met through another co-op that was very pleased with their service. They have gotten glowing remarks the whole time they work for us with our members. And ultimately, the remarks and the positives back from our members is what says it all. And looking at the overall scope of your project, I know we've kind of focused centrally on the, the CARES Act here. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about your entire project over the 5,000 plus miles that you're building? How many years it's going to take you to get to all of those members and what your strategy is around that? Overall project is a $113 million project. Many would say that we are still on a pretty aggressive schedule and that we want to complete this project in five years. That's going to mean building 1,000 to 1,200 miles a year. But we've been on that pace already. The challenges to continuing that pace will be materials. As many others get in the broadband business across the nation, the materials become a little more scarce, a little harder to get your hands on, a little more challenging to get them in here in a timely manner. As we run into various problems along the way that we weren't expecting, I'm sure that will slow us down. But then we'll have to catch back up immediately afterwards. A lot of times I relate it to much like working a storm. You just know you want it done as quickly as you can get it done. And you work your way through all the problems that arise in doing that to ultimately meet the end goal that you're, you're shooting for as service as fast as you can provide it. And being such a large cost for this overall project, can you talk to the listeners about, especially those who are may have done a feasibility study and are looking into getting into broadband, can you talk about your process of actually vetting out whether or not this project was going to be feasible and how you approach that internally and with your board? If you just look at the total project and how many subscribers you will need to make the project pay, you'll never do it. You'll never go to it. It'll scare you to death. EMEPA has about a $250 million electric plant, and you're talking about half that size again when you add fiber back to it. The $250 million was spent over 85 years. We're going to spend $114 million over five years. If you just walk in and present those numbers, anyone virtually would say, uh, no, we're not going to do that. So the better approach is to take a bite at a time, much like we did with the state legislature. We said we have two pilot areas totaling $13.7 million, basically 10% of the project. 
If you'll go 50-50 with us, we'll see if this idea will really work. Will we really get the take rates that our survey said we would get? Will people really want this service at the price we're willing to offer it at? And so we took that to the board. Also, MEPA operates off of a financial model that we use daily. Anything that we're going to do, what will it ultimately do to the in-use bill when it gets to the member? We plugged each five-year scenario in of fiber that would be built on the MEPA side and services that would be provided through the East Connect side. And ultimately, even if the project failed halfway through, the impact to the member was not so significant that we wouldn't go try it because the positives were so significant that if we're successful, we will change our communities. And when the board saw those comparisons, they were all on board and all saying, how quickly can you get this done? We expected from our survey a 43% take rate at the price we were talking about offering the service. When we first started the pilot projects, we initiated those at about a 20% level, and they are now at 50%. So everything is still following the, the roadmap that we laid out. And so as long as we're on the roadmap, service-wise, build-wise, finance-wise, expectation-wise, we know we're on the right path. And all along that path, we've got stops that if the path changes, then we have plans for what will happen when the the path changes. So, and I know you all did a couple or a few feasibility studies to look into this prior to actually seeing these results, prior to getting these customer surveys and saying, okay, this this is what it's looking like. And then now the actuals have even exceeded what the customer surveys were. Based on your feasibility studies, what types of take rates were you seeing inside of those models? And then what made you move forward with the company that you decided to move with forward with based on the modeling that they did as well? Connexon did a study for us. Connexon used these take rates that they were seeing historically from other co-ops that have done this process. We had another vendor do a survey for feasibility study for us. They used their historical take rates through theirs, which closely matched Connexon's. And then we built our own feasibility model in-house and used those take rates and our survey that we did with our members, which wasn't that much different than the other two that provided feasibility studies. And we built our own model, not only to check those two, but so that we better understood in-house what are all the moving pieces and how do they affect this model if they change? Because I think that's important too. My board doesn't expect me to always just take someone else's word for what's going to happen. They expect me to understand the path we're walking and where are the things that could trip us up along the way. So that was more the driving force behind the internal feasibility study. Currently, those three studies are very close to right on top of each other. And as long as that's the case, then they will be happy. And if they are happy, I'm happy. So fast forwarding at the time, Based on your feasibility studies initially, where were you seeing a break-even? And then now with the funding, which we'll dive into the additional RDOF funding, which was substantial to your build, what is it looking like from a break-even standpoint initially versus now? Depends on what you call break-even. If you're talking about the point at which you make all your money back, I, I don't tend to focus in on that. Where I focus is at what point does the business become positive net income? 
on the original feasibility studies, we were looking at a five, six, seven year time frame to becoming positive net income. With the ARDOF funds, we become positive net income in year two, and only because ARDOF doesn't come in until year two. So we will have a one year negative net income year. Year two, we get ARDOF funds, and we will have customers connected to the point that we will have positive net income, which starts growing in years to come. Does it take a lot of capital? Up front, yes, but there will be a point, I believe, soon in which the subsidiary business will be able to go out for its own loans and not have to rely on the co-op to even make the loans back to the subsidiary because of our off. It's amazing. And I mean, we hear it across the board from those more seasoned co-ops who have been doing this for nearly a decade, where even their subsidiary business is subsidizing their electric business. I can see that happening in the future. It will get to the point, which is a good thing, because the push is going to be more and more, I think, for decreased energy usage, even more as we go into the future. We've already seen it now for almost 10 years, where energy usage has been going down each year per location. That's a good thing for the member. They're not having to put as much money out there. And so this will help offset some of that lost revenue there, we'll say by providing a new service that is wanted, that is needed. And ultimately, the member may not be out any more money than they're out today. Yep. Drive down those electric rates, right? And provide a superior service, much better cost than the other providers that are out in those areas. I'd like to dive into that in a little bit, but back to Ardoff. I know, congratulations, you all did really well in the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund, securing $38.6 million. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process went going through the Ardoff auction and then being a part of a consortium where a lot of your fellow electric cooperatives in Mississippi were as well and how that was beneficial? We chose ConnectSum because of the expertise that was already there in doing an auction, and we were very pleased with the result. Could it have been better? Yes. Had not some um, larger new technology people drove the price down? There could have been more funds available and allocated to do more good with. But we were very pleased with what we did get. I think Mississippi was so successful because of our legislature being willing to invest funds on the front end. I think that kept some of the, shall we say, other bidders out of the process that might have come in had they not seen this already taking place. So I think the sprint has been worth it in that it got more from Ardolf into Mississippi. And that will ultimately help our members throughout the state even more. It's been a fast pace also, learning a lot of new things that we have not dealt with in the past as far as going after funds, requirements to get funds, things that we will have to report and do that we've relied again on Connexon to help us with not tripping up as we go down that path. Speaking of talking about the early stages with Mississippi, I mean, Mississippi was one of the last states to pass the Broadband Enablement Act, but has been one of the most progressive (laughs) states. So let's talk about speed, right? Not just the speed and the sprint that you all have done just in the recent four or five months, but there were years that had passed waiting for this Broadband Enablement Act. Jonathan Chambers often says that Mississippi's broadband story is one of the country's most inspiring and special. And Randy credits Mississippi state leadership and those of you who led the co-ops in bringing broadband to the residents. So can you kind of talk about the Broadband Enablement Act, the 
kind of all of the Mississippi co-ops coming together and how that's kind of changed the vision in Mississippi and, and made it one of the most progressive states in the country deploying block broadband today. It is quite an exciting story. When you think that just a little over two years ago, we were not even allowed to look at getting into broadband. And someone brought the idea up in the state legislature and everyone said, well, they'll talk about it this year. And then they might next year take it up again and consider it. And two weeks later, it passed. And all of a sudden, we could look at broadband. And then 12 months later, we're being asked to start businesses because coronavirus has hit and everybody needs broadband. And then six months after that, we have businesses started. And now nine months later, I don't know how much has been spent in the state. North part of the state, I think I read somewhere was approaching $800 million that's been spent or will be spent just in this first phase, year one of building broadband. So in a 30-month period, less than most people would finance a car for, we've gone from you can't do it to you are the one getting it done. It's an exciting story to tell. So I know 16, I think, of the 25 co-ops across the state are now deploying broadband to their members. Um, There were some that were a little earlier in the game than others even, right, that were a step ahead. So can you kind of talk to the membership demand, the membership demand prior to you doing broadband, maybe even the membership demand once they heard other cooperatives were going to be getting broadband and, Mm -hmm. and, and tell us a little bit about that and then what they're saying today. Well, 30 months ago, there wasn't any demand for for co-ops to do it because co-ops couldn't do it. But as soon as that door opened, the membership realized there's hope here. There's hope someone may bring us internet service. There's hope someone may bring us the pipe we can watch TV over. There's hope that someone may bring us the ability to work from home. And they started asking, how can we help make this happen? There were broadband groups that sprung up across the state on Facebook asking the co-ops to get in the business, get in the business. And they were very understanding when we said, we're looking, we're trying to figure out the path we can go that won't hurt you on the electric side and will help you on the broadband side. And if we are really, truly the group that should go do that for you, are we going to be able to gain the expertise? Are we going to be able to get the financing? Are we going to be able to set up a business that we know virtually nothing about and operate it in a way that does not tarnish the co-op image that's already out there? And so they were patient with us while we developed our plans. And they've been very pleased. I like to use the words that start with a P. So they've been patient on our plans and they've been very pleased that we now are finally implementing and getting there. Now, they still need to be patient because this is a five-year project. We see a little pushback happening from some other providers in the state, primarily if they feel like we're going to go into their territory where they already serve. And I understand that. I mean, everybody wants to protect their territory, but the legislation requires us to go everywhere that we serve a member, we do have to go and at least bring it by their house. And we will abide by the legislation as time goes on. And speaking of that, like looking into the areas where you've started deploying, can you talk about the competition or if did you all decide to go in an area where there was less, you know, it was more underserved? Mm -hmm. Can you talk to that and then how you guys are approaching um, and competing in this competitive telecommunications landscape? Our CARES Act money was intended to go to underserved and unserved areas. And I think that's right. I think that is a good goal of the legislative process is to serve those who don't have anything at all. 
And so that's where we have targeted. Now, to get to those areas, because you're coming from somewhere to get the service, you do have to go through some of those areas to get to the unserved and underserved. And because of the legislation, we will serve some through those areas rather than say, no, the wire's at the road, but you can't have service yet. That's not a co-op principle. And so we will provide those services as we go by those. That being said, as we move into the five-year window, there will be a balancing act that has to happen in that we go into more dense areas to help support less dense areas that would never have it to start with. Those more dense areas may have another provider already there. They may choose to change. And if they do, they will help support the overall progress that we make going into the unserved and underserved. It's a balancing act that we will go through for the next five years. And let's switch gears a little bit. And, you know, you've talked some about your relationship with Connexon. Could you give us a little more about the overall relationship that you've had with Connexon along the way, um, the different services and ways that they're supporting your project. Of course, we used Connexon for the design. We're using Connexon as the basically our build consultant uh, managing the project because the, the leadership of Connexon understands how to build a project. Uh, East Mississippi's management and leadership is learning how to build projects. So that's been helpful. Both Jonathan and Randy, to me, are people who, when they run into a brick wall and say, you can't go there, they look for a way around the brick wall. We're not going to try to break through the brick wall, but we look for the options to get around. East Mississippi is that way also. We haven't ever been afraid to look for another option when a door gets closed. So that's been a good partnership there. We're using the technical services offerings of Connexon, and that's been very positive. As we move into the phone area with the RDOF funds, we will become a phone company also offering that service if people choose to take it. And Connexon offers some very valuable expertise there that we'll be using also. And can you talk to, when looking at this big project and having to staff and augment staff for a subsidiary, where are the areas where you think it's valuable initially to outsource from like a technical support and a voice and then why? And then the areas that you've actually decided to hire staff in to support those different areas. Use your additional staff from your electric side. Well, I'm about to work my staff to death because every one of them are wearing multiple hats now and doing it willingly because they see the value of this project out in our area. Starting from the beginning, make ready engineering, make ready construction. We understand that piece of the business. So we've kind of focused in on dealing with what we understand, where the poles have to be changed out, where clearance is an issue, how do we manage those crews and that material that we already understand those pieces of material. When you move into the fiber side of it, Connexon oversees that uh, because they have that expertise and have the people that have that expertise to know the fiber is being built correctly, splicing is, is being done correctly, that we're on the, the rate of build that we need to be in order to make the project work. Tech support, I could have probably brought people in on tech support, but at the speed we're moving, we needed tech support immediately. And it takes a while to hire people, good people. So we went with Connexon's tech support. And I believe that's been a good choice. The phone side, we are so far behind on knowing what phone is, means, does, how, requirements of, regulations of. That's not a choice. You're going to go with someone. And I'm confident that Connexon's employees uh, represent the business well, have the expertise in the business that we are confident with. And so that's the direction we will go with that. 
We will bring staff in slowly, probably going to bring a materials manager in pretty soon to begin managing the inventory better to fit into the uh, ultimate plant values that we will be depreciating over the next 30 years, some of it. So it's it's important to get that right on the front end. The accounting side we're doing in-house because we've got to answer for it. Marketing we're pretty much doing in-house with the help of a vendor outside for some suggestions slash printing, all the things that happen there. Bill payments, we, we've got a separate piece of software that we're using from for that to process that. Visually, that does create the separation of the two companies and that we aren't doing it through the same vendor there. We will take payments in-house. To go totally separate there doesn't make sense to me. We will develop allocation methods based on number of bill payments that our member services representatives can charge their time to the correct billing entity, and then we will bill for taking those payments. We already do that on a water association in our area where we take their payments and process them, and we allocate time based on the number of bills taken. So we already knew how to do that. Uh, What pieces did I leave out? I don't know. I think you covered a large portion of them. I'm sure there's more, right? There's tons of things going on on the back end and we're just all trying to keep up. So at this point in your project, what have been a few of your biggest milestones and why do you consider them significant? Having almost 900 customers in nine months from the date we started the company, that's a pretty big milestone that we're over. We've built the 500 plus miles of line. That's a big milestone. We have built a relationship with the legislature that amazes me. They are in almost constant contact with us about where we are, how we're doing, what do we need, although they haven't come back with any more money yet, but that might happen. That relationship has been very positive in that they trust us and they listen to us. And if something comes up in the legislature that challenges this process, they immediately call. So that's been a great thing to happen. But probably most of all is the trust our membership is placing in us. We have a 99% positive vote out of our annual meeting to go into broadband. How many things today would you see a 99% positive out of? So it's been very energizing for them to offer us comments, offer us suggestions, offer us thanks, say, yeah, I'd like to have it today, but I understand it's going to take a few days, but I am just so thankful you're even looking. That's been the biggie. Before we end, too, I have a couple more questions. But speaking of that, and the members that you've served in those underserved areas, can you talk about the appreciation and the feedback that you're getting for providing broadband services that they have not had access to until now? It's At times, it's almost overwhelming the thanks that you see from them. We've got kids, of course, who have been at home this year trying to do homework at home. Those have been really excited. You've got grandparents who can FaceTime with grandchildren that they didn't get to see because of the virus. You've got people participating in telemedicine that haven't ever before. You've got people who can watch TV shows they weren't able to before. So all of them have been just extremely appreciative and amazingly seem to understand what a mountain this has been to get over. I hate to keep relating it back to storms, but it's almost like they realize what you went through to get here. And so there's a really, really great appreciation that they express about it. We are collecting best practices from co-op leaders. Mississippi has just blown my mind on how quickly things have got moved, but not only moved, how successful that you all have become in doing so in such a short period of time. For those listeners out there who are contemplating getting into broadband and determining whether or not this is something that's good for their cooperative, you know, could you give some feedback on any advice to share with them on that or or those that are early getting started as well and how you all have been so successful in your endeavors thus far? 
It's pretty simple. Ask your members. Ask your members if they want the service. If they say they want the service, you're there to serve them. And so you need to find the path to get it there. As far as best practices, I don't know that we've concentrated on any other best practice than they want this service. What does it take to get it to them? Price it at the value that will will make you successful. You're not going to get rich off of it. You're not going to one day wake up and, and say, I don't have to do anything electrically anymore because broadband is the way to go. Remember always, service is what you're providing. The medium you do it through could be electric. It can be broadband. It may be other things we haven't thought of down the road. But ultimately, ask your members if they want the service. It's your job to provide it. Well, thank you so much, Randy, for your time today and sharing with us. Thanks to all our listeners, too. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have any thoughts or questions or areas you'd like to explore, you can email us at marketing at connectson.us, and we'll get back to you. Tune in for our next episode of Co-Ops Connect, and everyone have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Co-Ops Connect is brought to you by Connexon the industry leader in rural fiber network design and construction management. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions and topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email us, marketing at connexon.us, with your suggestions or for more information on how we support electric co-ops deploying broadband.